Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It's my great pleasure today uh, to uh, invite two colleagues into our teeny monk school studio. Uh, they are Stephen Bernstein and Matthew Hoffman. Stephen and Matthew are both colleagues deeply involved in climate change governance writing and researching in the area, and they are co-directors of the Environmental Governance Lab here at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Both have been researching new pathways to deep decarbonization with colleagues from Canada, the United States, the UK, and Sweden. So uh, let's join in in the conversation I had with my colleagues on uh, the series Climate Change Policy in the Aftermath of the Paris Accord. So gentlemen, it's a real pleasure to have you with me here at the Global Summetry Podcast Studio uh, <laughs> here at the Monk School. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you both. Great, Thank you. great to be here. Thank you. Uh, both Stephen and, and Matt, of course, uh, are very involved in the environmental governance area in particular and environment generally and in fact are the co-directors of the environmental governance lab. So uh, I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to sit with you for a wee bit and uh, talk about the issues. So uh, gentlemen, uh, the Paris Accord as we know was successfully concluded in December 2015. At the conclusion of the Accord, great deal of optimism, excitement expressed by delegates and state officials and lots of other folks who were attending in, uh, in Paris. I wanted to focus for a moment, though, on why it was successful in December 2015 when, in fact, we had gone year after year uh, unable to be able to kind of come together and get a universal kind of agreement. I can start. Uh, I think there's a couple of things. There's a couple of structural changes that happen, and then some very specific instances of cooperation and change among states that, that made a big difference. Um, on the structural side, I think that finally we got to a move beyond the question of who will participate when to really talking about how each country is going to participate. And this was a long time coming. It started. Uh, following the sort of Kyoto model of we're all going to hew to this one centralized approach, mm -hmm. started to fall apart around Copenhagen in 2009, and really that change to the bottom up was cemented at Paris. But I think a couple of very specific things happened to make this possible in 2015. Uh, the first is the one that most people talk about is the China-US condominium, where they basically offline from the UN negotiations had shared with each other what they were willing to do and had come to some agreement that what the other side was doing was adequate. And so you for the first time get the two largest emitters agreeing that what the other is doing is enough and is enough to fully participate. And I think the second thing, and this is less talked about, is the compromise along the north-south lines to really get everybody on board with this also had a lot to do with the adaptation funding. And I think that the global finance part of this, the $100 billion a year 
by 2030 is a less appreciated reason why you got such a big global deal at this particular point in time. There was finally money on the table, mm-hmm. um, not just the common but differentiated responsibility principles on the table. So for our listeners, just uh, that was Matt. Uh, Steve, do you have anything to kind of add to the, the discussion on this? Sure. I think there were there were a couple of background factors, uh, and some some that Matt's uh, I agree with Matt uh, the things that he's mentioned, but there's maybe one or two additional things, and there were also some uh, short term or or immediate factors that I think made a difference. So in in the background, um, if people have been following this, you know, would recall that uh, you know people sort of pointed to Copenhagen as, as this, this failure when indeed Copenhagen, um, in a funny sort of way, actually set the course forward that, that Matt was uh, talking about. So it, it wasn't as if they had to start from scratch, um, e- even, though, uh, even though the Copenhagen negotiations weren't, weren't successful in, in mm-hmm. some ways. But in the intervening period, um, you did have a kind of cementing of the science uh, the science was out there before, but the scientific consensus, at least uh, officially, we know there was some disagreement and some, some you know, debate in some countries. But at the official level, um, you know, the IPCC reports were were very clear, um, and there was a sense in in the wake of the failure of Copenhagen that something had to be done, and there was just this sort of search for what that what that model would be. Um, there was also the uh, amount of activity that was going on. This is something that actually in Matt and uh, my governance lab we're looking at, and Matt's actually one of the the key people who's been working in this area. But all of the non-state sort of action, mm-hmm. um, that uh, non-state and sub-state and and things that were going on that weren't necessarily national government plans, meant that uh, there was this activity that was that was out there that there was a sense among governments that could be. Uh, captured or at least recognized, um, and that there was momentum outside of the negotiations uh, that that again created a good environment. And, and the last thing is, and I'm certainly not the only person to point this out. The French did a terrific job. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they they've got a strong diplomatic corps. They did a lot of background work in in uh, arranging bilateral meetings um, with with. With various uh, with various countries, um, with you know serving good food, of uh, having uh, uh, meeting spaces that um, didn't repeat some of the you know kind of the the negotiation mistakes, the diplomacy mistakes that people point to in, in Copenhagen. So in fact, the the negotiations themselves, uh, and there's you know some fine grain stuff. I don't know if we want to get into it, but mm-hmm. th- that uh, that made a difference in terms of the actual deal making. Uh, that that not only kept the momentum going, but in those often these summits, you know, th- it, it's sort of you know, oh my God, it's going to fall apart, you know. And then at midnight, everything gets pulled together. And there were a couple of moments like that in Paris, but even in those moments, uh, the French seemed to handle it very well, and and uh, uh, the, the the deal came together. Let me just ask one follow-up of you, Matt. Uh, this financing that you reference, and I have a, you know, I have some questions for you a little bit on when we look at the current U.S. administration. But before we get there, I guess the question is, who, who's doing the funding, and uh, is that 
you know, is it real? Is it imaginary? You know, that's a lot. That's a fair bit of money, and I take it this is a year-on-year -year kind of financing. It's not a one-time. Yeah, and kind it's of it's not real yet. It's right? not real. So these were pledges. Mm -hmm. and this was, and it, this wasn't pledges in the same way that NDCs were pledges, where each country said, "Here's what I'm going to do on the mitigation side." There wasn't a commit a concomitant. This is what I'm going to do on the money side, right? And so this was a collective global north to global south. We will fund, uh, especially adaptation uh, costs, mm -hmm. and it was supposed to. And this came also out of Copenhagen, right? It started at thirty billion dollars, and they've ratcheted up to a hundred billion dollars. And it's the same players in terms of who would participate mm -hmm. in these funds: the Scandinavians and, and things along this line. The United States had pledged quite a bit. I don't have the number off the top of my head, but the United States had pledged quite a bit uh, and that pledge is in significant danger and right. so this is something moving forward that I think will be contentious in the post-Paris cops mm -hmm. is whether the turning this money in from a pledge to actual dollars okay so it does I mean as you say I mean if that was an important ingredient yeah. to uh, to Paris then that's something we have to presumably watch Yes. To, to anticipate so you know, forward a, movement or not. A lot of the countries in the global south, uh, this isn't the only reason they signed on. There's multiple reasons they signed on. But this was part of the big north-south bargain that made Paris possible. Okay. So uh, one acronym, which of course we all throw around like uh, water, but NDCs, which are nationally determined contributions. These are the commitments, I take it that individual countries have identified as their contribution to the reduction in carbon emission. Yeah, so this is the this is the new normal that is instead of having a collective uh, mandated emissions reduction that is then spread out amongst countries after it's negotiated at the global level, every country comes to the negotiations or came to the negotiations in Paris with a commitment of what they were ready to pledge. Okay. And this is the new model now that essentially climate action is based on national level commitments, national level strategies and policies. Okay. Now these NDCs then, just again to distinguish a term, uh, uh, these NDCs are mitigation strategies. That is reductions in the amount of carbon emission. But you also referenced a uh, 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 different than where the financing comes in its adaptation. What's the distinction between mitigation and adaptation? Well, mitigation is the actions to try and deal with or ameliorate the problem of climate change, where adaptation is living with the results and implications of climate change. Okay. And so, and especially in the global south, this is their sometimes co-equal concerns, but certainly adaptation is an enormous concern in the global south given how little most countries in the global south, excluding some very large countries in the global south, but how little most countries in the global south have actually contributed to the problem, and how little they continue to contribute to the problem of climate change. Okay. So adaptation is a much bigger priority for many. So this would include the vulnerable island states and so forth. They don't do a whole lot of admitting, right. but the threats to them are real yes. and could be, uh, well, they could disappear yes. you know, over time. Yes. Okay. And of course, we should, we should keep in mind, I mean, this isn't necessarily the 
you know, the, the focus of, of, of the issue of why we got agreement and so on, but mm -hmm. adaptation, there's a recognition that adaptation is also something that will go on in the north and that this is going to be a big part of the cost okay. uh, of, of, of climate change. Um, but the but the question of the, the, the bargaining around it is that it has been pushed more by the south because uh, naturally the uh, countries with, with greater resources and capabilities um, will be better able to adapt, although of course what we're seeing now um, in terms of you know these hurricanes, we, again we can't attribute any particular storm to climate change and so on, but we are certainly getting, uh, uh, getting examples of the kinds of problems that countries are going to face um, when they're low-lying uh, countries and so on, and e even countries in the north uh, are having to face difficult choices in terms of what, what they're going to do uh, in terms of their infrastructure and where people are going to live and so on. Okay. So um, we're aware that, I mean, we saw all the pictures and celebrations with re respect to, to the Paris Agreement, and it, but it was also evident that it wasn't just states uh, uh, that were involved in um, uh, these efforts to mitigate, uh, that you had sub-state actors, meaning provinces and states in a variety of places, the intergovernmental agencies, the, you know, all the, what we now kind of entitle the non-state actors, so um, you know, corporations, individuals, all sorts of different actors. Have those who have been involved in uh, the Paris Agreement uh, being able to accommodate all that variety of actors, which clearly don't look like traditional diplomacy uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I think that they're learning. I think the UNFCC, this is a, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the, the mm -hmm. parent body to the Paris Agreement, uh, doesn't know exactly how to deal with these yet. Right, and they've started the process in a decent way. And how you would start this? They've started by cataloging actions, right? And so you have and cataloging not just in the let's put together a database, but cataloging with the notion that this can lead to different kinds of action. Mm -hmm. And so they're hoping to bring them in um, in important ways. And so you have things like the Lima Paris Action Agenda, which is an attempt to not only catalog, but recognize all of this kind of activity that's going on outside the UN diplomacy type of governance mm -hmm. with the sense that it can build momentum, that it can eventually help countries ratchet up their NDCs because the more action you get going at the subnational level, it's not just national policy that is going to be driving climate commitments at the national level. But... At heart, the UNFCCC is an intergovernmental body, mm -hmm. right? And so there was recognition built into the Paris Agreement, which is, is actually relatively rare for a UN treaty document. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to build some infrastructure to recognize and catalog what's going on. But this is actually where a lot of the discussions are going on, both within the UN, about how do you orchestrate or how do you use this to accelerate the goals of the Paris Agreement, and it's also going on in all of those bodies that you just talked about outside the UN process. How do we want to engage with the UNFCCC? What kind of engagement is there? What does it mean to engage with the UNFCCC? Okay, fair enough. 
let's turn to uh, President Trump's decision uh, to withdraw uh, the United States from Paris. And we know technically, even if you announce you're withdrawing, you can't withdraw immediately. It takes a number of years for that. Four years, yes. Yeah, for that process to actually work. But I'm more interested in what he said in, in terms of his Rose Garden speech of June 1st uh, of this year. Trump argued that the Paris Accord was unfair to the United States, that it imposed obligations on the United States that were not imposed on China, in particular he mentioned China, and um, uh, even if all the countries met their current nationally determined contributions, these NDCs, it really wouldn't mean much of anything. It would move the dial a teeny bit. So I guess the question is, was Trump right? And if he was not right, what are the consequences then for U.S. withdrawal from the accord, assuming that it goes up forward? We don't know. So no, no, and no. Okay, so <laughs> none of his assertions, I take it, <laughs> were correct. His assertions were, were fantasy. <laughs> They're not even close to the realm of truth, yeah. which is not unsurprising. I mean, just to put a fine point, his his assertions were it's as if he picked up a uh, picked up an oppositional speech from the Kyoto negotiations yeah. and took it off table and said, "Oh, these were the arguments that were made then." They people, if I say this now, people will believe that that yeah. this is the problem, but the circumstances have, are radically different. Yeah, it, it can't be unfair to the United States, given that the United States isn't obligated to do anything except bring its plan, which it develops itself, to the international community. It can't impose differential obligations on the United States and China, because again, their only obligations are to develop a national plan and bring it to the international community. And where there's a slight hint of at least being in the realm of truth is that, yes, the collection of NDCs that are in place now uh -huh. do not reduce emissions enough to get to the two-degree target that's enshrined in the Paris Agreement. It's more closer to the three degrees, and there's a range around that. But everyone knew that going in, that the original Paris Agreement was not going to be enough. This is why there are mechanisms in the Paris Agreement for states to ratchet up their NDCs over time. This was always meant to be, here's the first step, and be on a trajectory towards that aspirational goal of two degrees. Any further thoughts on that, Stephen? Or? Uh, no, I mean, I, I agree with that, and I think that's sort of what... what what the facts are. I mean, these arguments, these are sort of old arguments about, well, if it's not going to solve the problem, we don't do something, which is a very strange argument as a politician to make since we, there's many problems that don't, don't get solved by a single policy. And so you say, well, you don't do any, you know, we're, we're not going to solve, we're not going to make everybody live forever so we won't have health care. I mean, it's a silly kind of argument. But um, apart from that, the other part of your question um, I think the last part of your question was, what are the consequences? Consequences of the U.S. withdrawal. Of the U.S. withdrawal. So that, that, that's a much uh, trickier question, and uh, you know, a couple of words on that. So in, there's, you know, there's debate around it because there's the, you know, there's the symbolic consequences. There's the actual consequences of what the U.S. policies are that are 
not necessarily because of the withdrawal, but are sort of part and parcel of of U.S. climate policy, and that make it easier mm-hmm. for the U.S. to, um, which was going to happen anyway, ratchet down its domestic policies uh, under the argument, I suppose, that now, in the longer run anyway, that, that supposedly the U.S. won't have these international commitments. I suppose there's something that might go together there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's the, uh, you know, how other countries are going to react. Um, so the you know the sort of the the legal arguments are that the you know the negotiators um, weren't stupid um, and Obama wasn't stupid. It was it was set up to have a, a this timeline mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't be and, and when it was ratified or, or it was it came into effect. Um, it does mean that there should be an election in between, um, but de facto. The, so the U.S. will still be there, but de, fa- de facto it, it means that they uh, have signaled that they're not sort of going to follow through with their commitments. So the, a couple of big questions on the table, and I'll let Matt uh, you know, maybe weigh in on where he thinks things are going to go. Um, but one question is, uh, will, um, you know, will the U.S. be uh, an obstacle um, because it's still going to be in the room? Um, or does this mean they're going to kind of pull back? And it could mean, okay, well, other countries will, if they were still in and, and, and uh, you know, being obstructionist, that that could do more harm. If they pull back, if other countries are still committed, well, maybe that's for the best because the expectations of, of a Trump administration um, on climate change were relatively low uh, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big question is uh, whether, you know, how other countries are going to react. The signals so far are that countries are staying on course. Okay. That this hasn't really affected uh, what countries are going to do. Um, I think the bigger question, well, too big, is what? how does it really affect negotiations? And then... If times get tough, um, sort of wh- whether this will, you know, change the rules, countries will sort of uh, pull back because they're saying, well, the U.S. is pulling back, we're going to pull back too. But uh, that's yeah, no, I agree with all of that, and uh, I'm actually of the, and I've written, I'm of the mind that if the U.S. is going to be obstructionist and terrible on climate change, it's actually better if they're not at the table. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have a recalcitrant U.S out of the Paris Agreement than in trying to muck everything up. Okay. Especially, and this is an argument that also Uta Bernay has made uh, at our law school, that one of the keys is if the United States is allowed to stay in and reduce rather than ratchet up its commitments, this could have a, a real problematic effect on what the aspirational goals of the Paris Agreement actually are and mm-hmm. the sort of normative foundations of it. You alluded to it, uh, Matt, and uh, it, it is, an, uh, I think, a critical question, which is that, you know, current direction, we know that uh, if people fulfilled all these commitments that they've identified, states, and presumably non-state actors as well, that at best we could reduce greenhouse gases by the, they estimate around four to six billion tons, right by twenty thirty, uh, and, and that would keep the temperature change to two point seven, three point four. That's kind of the range people are talking about. 
just just this past week, uh, Christine Lagarde, the managing director of the IMF, said that we will be toasted, roasted, and grilled if the world face to, uh, fails to take critical decisions on climate change. And it's pretty clear that you know the commitments to date aren't aren't going to do it. So the question then becomes: Okay, so if those aren't going to do it, uh, what do we need to do? What is coll- the collective effort to do to do what hasn't yet been done? Well, I think this is actually where the Paris Agreement is a remarkable document, right? Because you got to remember that the, all those temperature estimates that you're talking about are what the te- temperature estimates in 2100 are yes. going to be. Yep. And, again, no one expected that the first round of NDCs would get us to our aspirational goal. I mean, I certainly didn't. Um, The idea, the theory of change here is that once you start acting on these NDCs, Mm -hmm. once you start implementing policies that bring you towards what your emissions targets are, is that what you'll find, and this we find in a lot of different environmental areas, is once you actually start working on it, it's actually easier to ratchet up over time because you change the technological infrastructure, you change the political landscape beyond behind who is supportive of aggressive action on climate change, you change the economic landscape around where investments go and where people are think they're going to make money. Mm-hmm. And so all of that means that your initial set of commitments really are that. They are initial. It's not like this is what is going to be the sum total. Because also remember, in that Paris Agreement and amongst almost all of the NDCs I've seen, they have their 2030 goals, but then they also have 2050 goals. So Canada has said it's essentially going to almost decarbonize or even Prime Minister Harper said decarbonize by 2100. And a lot of these NDCs have 80% reduction goals by 2050. Right? And so it's a question of getting started so that it starts to alter what you see as possible. And that's, that's the hope and the theory of change behind the Paris Agreement, not that the initial NDCs are going to do it. And this is why there's also within the Paris Agreement requirements to do stock-taking every five years mm-hmm. for the international community to gather and say, are we doing enough? And what should these... What do we need to go further? Okay. And the hope is that those can motivate states to, to go further on their NDCs. Steve? Well, so I'll paint a, maybe I'll, I'll give the, the pessimistic answer and then, <laughs> and, then, and then the optimistic answer, which isn't too far off from, from what Matt said. So the pessimistic answer is that, if, look, if we're really talking about, let's move out of the realm of, of politics and into the realm of so, you know, what's the effect going to be of these changes in policies and so on in the U.S. and so on? They're going to be bad. Now, will they be bad for four years or five years, or will they be bad for longer? We, we don't know. Um, but there's no way around it they're going to be bad. There's no way under, the, you know, you get rid of the, so as listeners may or may not know, the, under Obama there was an EPA rule. Um, that uh, included, uh, uh, you know, eliminating coal and... and, and oh, you uh, mean the Clean Power the, Plan? Yeah, right. the Clean Power Plan Act mm-hmm. and, um, and other sorts of uh, sets of policies which are, you know, effectively gone on, under Trump. Um, and and these this, this means that, 
U.S. emission, there's just no way the U.S. is going to meet its target. And, and symbolically, they've sent signals that they have no intention of, of trying to do that. That's going to be bad for the climate. It's going to set things back, not just for those years, but um, for, you know, one of the world's largest, I mean, maybe they're, I guess they're number two now. Um, it, it means that, that they're going to do much more poorly. And so, you know, the, the, the ability to, all of the broader picture of dealing with climate change is that it should, the earlier you start doing things, at least in theory, the, the more cost effective it's going to be uh, to solve the problem. It's very hard to do it all at once. You, 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 want, to, you want to ratchet up over time. So it is bad, and um, anyone who thinks that an international agreement of any kind is actually going to, on its own, uh, solve this problem or get countries to do what it is that they need to do, or markets or you know other sorts of actors do what they want to do, I mean, I, I think is living in a fantasy world. So what, so what do you have? You have a political reality where it's one piece of a puzzle, and what Paris is about, and this is where I agree with Matt, is it's actually not about, it, yes, it's about the commitments and so on. Right. The question is whether it, um, whether it facilitates an ongoing commitment and set of actions to transform societies away from their dependence on fossil fuels and other greenhouse gases. Okay. Yeah. And so this is what the real debate should be. And so when you talk about, oh, it's only going to be 2.7, it's going to be 3.5, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. Well, these numbers to me are quite meaningless because these pledges aren't, uh, it's not that the pledges are meaningless, but the, the pledges only matter if they're met. Mm -hmm. And whether they're met or not depends on whether countries themselves put in place policies and other, you know, and the investments happened and other kinds of changes happen. And so... Paris is probably, in my view, a much more realistic sort of framework to do that than what we had before. Um, but if the commitment is undermined, continues to be undermined, uh, by the actions of large emitters like the United States, um, then that doesn't bode well for even you know, staying within 3.5. Okay. Uh, our colleague from uh, the, the University of California uh, San, uh, San Diego, US, uh, UCSD, uh, David Victor, tends to focus particularly, I've had some discussions with him, on the energy systems and the energy systems transformation. So it's not really the political side, it's much more the market uh, side, the corporate side, and his view being that these things change slowly and there's a lot of planning that goes into it and these things are happening that there is um, uh, that kind of planning going on uh, at the energy system level because corporations are looking into the future and saying, hmm, you know, what is it that we, you know, we're looking at the cost equations, we're looking at the efficiency equations and w what they should be. Uh, and so it's, you know, at one level he's suggesting it, it's not so much the politics of it, but it's the economics of it and around the people who are making those kinds of decisions, obviously the politics impacts because if there's a, a, a abatements all over the place for energy use, then that can have an impact. But I, I wonder, you know, focused a little bit on that, but also I was intrigued by the fact that uh, Governor Brown of California was calling for this, you know, summit to be uh, had 
uh, of you know more than just state uh, state delegation. Are is there a continuing kind of activity then occurring in the United States? Let's say because it's number two, as Steve mentioned, it's number two in total emissions towards a better uh, a better emissions kind of, of uh, framework. Are the Americans continuing to operate, notwithstanding the guys in Washington? So now let me give you a, a again, I'll give you sort of the optimistic and pessimistic scenario, um, <laughs> and then we, maybe we can talk specifically about your question. So the optimistic scenario, uh, you know, responding to, to people like uh, David Victor, is, is indeed that that um, the signals are, or be, because of, I mean, it's both. I mean, to be fair, it's both political signals uh, sure. that that corporations and, and market players are responding to, as well as their own kind of assessment of, of you know what the what the economic. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, well, there's uh, huge uh, political decisions uh, underlying yeah. the economic trends. Yeah. So you know, so let's kind of not lose sight of that. Right. But, but if let let's say those political decisions outside of the United States are such that there's pressure for an energy transition, mm -hmm. and we're seeing it for other reasons in places like China and, in, and even India, although it's a little slower and different. Um, so you know, if they're saying, "Well, we want to be able to sell cars in uh, China," um, we you know, and uh, they, they've got a big pollution problem, and they seem to be buying into this, you know, they yep. the degree climate change is a problem, um, and Despite the trade disputes or whatever, they're building lots of solar panels there that are that are very competitive, and um, and you know the it doesn't make sense to invest anymore in fossil fuels or not as much. Mm -hmm. um, then you know the business community is is usually sort of ahead. Of, if there's if these are where the profit margins are and this is where the risk is, then you could say okay, well then we would expect them to mm -hmm. respond, and there's no reason to believe they they wouldn't and. And certainly there's lots of research and innovation and, um, you know, engineers are working on this and it's happening all over. And if the U.S. Uh, energy companies and systems in the U.S. want to be competitive and so on, then um, that, that makes sense. The more pessimistic scenario, though, is that um, I wouldn't underestimate the, the damage that poor political decisions and signals can make. I mean, mm -hmm. if you basically subsidize the coal sector, for example, okay. um, then it undermines price, the price mechanism, and um, means that the uh, you know your your return and so on 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 uh, um, you know the investment in renewables is is uh, is going to be less. Um, mm -hmm. There's going to be less of a market for these things because the because the price signals are all go going to be mixed up. Um, or you, you know, save. Uh, anyway, you can think of a whole slew of regulatory and non-regulatory kinds of policies and, and subsidies and so on um, that combat ag uh, against this. So you know, there's lots of stuff written about this, but I think the um, the key thing there is to think of well, how how do these things go together, and whether something like Paris or whether sub-state actors, and I'll I'll turn it over to Matt to talk more about that and, and Brown's initiative. Um, whether or not they can, with, with, within the context of these various larger players, um, what kind of room they have. Uh, certainly they've, they've 
been laboratories for innovation before. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know in the U.S. context, Matt, whether this is still the case that California, it's easy for California to step out ahead or not. Well, I don't know that it's easy. And this, so there's precedent for this, right? So the U.S. under George W. Bush did not, was obstructionist on climate change. Mm -hmm. But it was different. There was more neglect <laughs> than it was active opposition to, to climate action. Mm -hmm. And just say, we're not going to do anything. Whereas the Trump administration is not saying we're not going to do anything. They're actively undermining and actively supporting stuff that, like coal subsidies, that go that will make it worse. And my sense is that the the states, the U.S. states that are really interested in moving quickly, Massachusetts, California, New York, mm -hmm. they still have room to operate precisely because of the size of their economies. Um, I think they will find it very hard to maintain a anti-federal government stance for more than four years. I think they can survive, and there's, they can survive doing this with a hostile federal government for one presidential term. I don't know that they can, can do it for two or in an ongoing basis. Um, just because there's so much that the federal government can do to undermine mm -hmm. well, just in terms of taxation, in terms of subsidies. Um, and so that's that's going to be an, an open question, and and we'll see. So an initiative like Brown's to gather together yeah. in a summit at the state level as yeah. opposed to at the federal level, your presumption is, yeah, you can do it for a while, and it kind of collectively works, yeah. at least with respect to the United States. But if this becomes more endemic and long term, that's a different issue. That's yeah, I would say that's right. And I, they can they'll show leadership, and I think, and they these states have enough control over some parts of the climate file that they can do a lot of good. And in fact. The stuff going on in the substate might keep the U.S. on track for its twenty for meeting its NDC anyway. Okay, but again, not if there's long-term undermining of the commitments that the U.S. made in Paris by the federal government. And, and one other interesting aspect about, it, if I understand what the, what he wants to do at the summit, this is a it's it's an international summit, right? And so right. the the linkages. Uh, the, the there is an ability, and Paris actually recognizes this, which is a nice feature of Paris, but it's not because of Paris, uh, that uh, there there is an ability for a, a large actor, I mean, California is, is a large actor, even though it's within the United States, to play on on its own playing field uh, a little bit and to, to act, act internationally, um, and it, it can... Make linkages. It's 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 a hub for innovation. It it, it can do um, some of its own deals. I, I think on the policy side, I'm more worried. I'm less worried, or not less worried. I'm more optimistic on the innovation side, on the partnership side, on the leadership side. And I think there there's lots of opportunity uh, for uh, for actors to uh, step out ahead in that is an interesting feature of, of the, uh, you know, sort of the global mm -hmm. uh, environment around, uh, policy environment around this issue. So I, uh, quick summing up, uh, uh, looking at the crystal ball, and I won't hold you to it, but a uh, quick sense as to whether or not you are 
generally positive uh, as a result of Paris and the follow-up meeting. We've got one coming up in 2018 on the rule book, and then of course we have a review in uh, 2020 uh, under under the Paris timetable. Do you have a general, guys, a general positive sense for now, or negative sense, or again, it won't hold you to it, but. So are we going to put money on this? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm still relatively positive about the international sphere. I think that the Paris Agreement is the best cli global climate agreement that the international community can get. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean it's the best one, but it's the best that's possible. And everything I've seen so far is that other country, all the countries that are not the United States are moving forward on this. Um, where my pessimism comes in is just how important a player the United States is, mm -hmm. symbolically, technologically, financially. And so uh, that a long-term shift towards not only sort of climate neglect but outright climate obstructionism on the part of the US will make it very difficult for Paris to be successful because even though we have a decentralized structure now for the global response to climate change which I think is a much better one mm -hmm. you still need to have the major players if especially really working on this because you know, we're at a point where we are within a couple of years of needing to have peak emissions and start going down globally. So and bending so that is, curve. Bending we the, have to bend the curve. And so this is perhaps the single worst time for Trump to have been elected in history mm -hmm. in terms of the timing and when we need to be taking the most serious action to not only avoid the worst aspects of climate change, but to do so in a way that allows us to transform our societies in a way that we can do so justly and in a way that we can do so without being in an emergency. Steve? So I, I generally agree with Matt's assessment, so I'm, I'm generally positive about Paris for the reasons that Matt mentioned. I will say that my expectations have diminished a little bit uh, that there will be sort of quick and easy negotiations on the rule book mm -hmm. and that will sort of, you know, move apace as, as we might have had things turn out differently in the United States. My worry is not that Paris is going to fall apart or that it's going to suffer the same fate as Kyoto. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's actually set a pathway that's a very good political pathway and, and a realistic one. My worry, though, is that with without leadership or with leadership from countries that may not be able to capture the political dynamics mm -hmm. uh, or deal with the political dynamics that might be at play, we could see a bogging down of negotiations. I mean, we did see this uh, in the post-Kyoto period as well. Mm -hmm. um, so we could see a bogging down of negotiations, which means things may move a little slower internationally. Um, it means that could then disrupt the flow of funds that Matt talked about, that deal earlier, so some of the international politics could run into some, some trouble. Um, 
and my hope is is that the other kinds of activities that countries continue along a pace with the policies that they would support and the other actors that you were talking about Alan mm -hmm. um, will continue a pace and the business sector will continue to see the, the 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 right market signals and read things correctly of where they can be advantaged and where they're not going to be competitive and so on so if that stuff is still along I'm not too concerned about following the nitty-gritty of oh you know bond doesn't turns out we can't quite get the rule book quite right um, but it is a uh, there are a couple of you know poison pills um, that could happen particularly the one that Matt mentioned uh, uh, that our colleague you to Brunei mentioned if, if if countries start to try to really play games play games um, yeah. and then that that could at least be harmful to the kind of uh, overall facilitation that we're we're seeing of these international efforts, and 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 that that does have longer term implications. But my my hope is is that we slow down a bit, but really things uh, continue well enough that that the momentum that's been generated doesn't fall apart. Well, that's pretty positive. Well, I want to thank you both for taking some time out and coming to our fine studio here. Uh, to undertake this podcast on uh, post-Paris. Thanks, guys. Our pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you.